Hey everyone, welcome back to the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is part of my birthday special, which is a mini season of seven new interviews that I'm releasing on May 25th. But before we dive in, I've got a couple of great deals to tell you about from people that I've interviewed on the show before. I know a lot of us are spending time reflecting on what matters, and many of you have told me that you're planning on making some big changes in your life. If you're feeling stuck and looking for a push to help you find what's next or just someone to help crystallize the path you're already on, I recommend you listen to my interview with Laura Gassner-Otting and then go and sign up for her brand new Limitless course. LGO just has such a refreshing, no BS perspective on the world and she's been through the ringer. So she's the perfect person to coach you through the changes you want to make in your life. So go to heylgo.com forward slash where others won't. So that's hey, like hey, as in g'day, lgo.com forward slash where others won't and check out the Limitless course. Or if you live in the United States and you just want some kick-ass coffee delivered to your house, head to bluestonelane.com and use wow25 at checkout. Bluestone have been great supporters of mine. And let's be honest, coaches love coffee. Now, enjoy the show. Michael Lepp, welcome to Where Others Won't. Thanks, Scotty. Good to be with you today. Staying warm. Staying warm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what wardrobe to have out at the moment. It, up here in Toronto, we've got, it got snow. It, it got down to free, it got to freezing here in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, last night. So I can't imagine it was uh, a little cold up there. We were freezing overnight as well. And then I looked at the weather app and it's going to be 20 Celsius next Wednesday. So we, uh, yeah, I, I don't yeah, know whether yeah. I have the shorts or the pants or all of yeah. it. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what do you wear? And, and we're getting ready to, we've been going through all this cold. We're getting ready to put on fire suits and, uh, and uh, no, all this stuff uh, to go out in 90 degree weather. So uh, strange times. Strange times indeed. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We've had a couple of chats and, and been following each other for some time. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've found your world fascinating. I was a motorsport head growing up, you know, even in Australia, you know, went to the Formula One every year with my mom and IndyCar on the Gold Coast when it was down there and, and followed the V8s, our stock car equivalent of, of NASCAR. And um, so, yeah, really been fascinated. And then it's come up a couple of times on, on my show people asking about your world, pit crews mm-hmm. and, and motorsport and how it all fits together, more so from the human side. And mm-hmm. that's why I've been really keen to, to get you on. And so let's, let's get straight into it. We don't lollygag on this show. We go, we go straight to the heart of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You said something to me last week when we we're on the phone that stuck with me that, you know, even though you are in an engineering field, motorsport, and it's all data and numbers that you believe that culture is what wins races and wins championships. And that'll, you know, seem a little bit odd to to a lot of people, racing fans or not. So I'd love for you to just explain why that's your perception, especially from your background as well, and we can get into your background. But tell me about that comment that you you believe that there's culture is at at the heart of winning races and, and winning championships. You, you know, Goody, it's, it's, I didn't believe that 15 years ago. Um, you know, uh, I had my own human performance <clears throat> lab and business, uh, and by, and, and really doing a lot of coaching of endurance athletes, uh, pro cycling, uh, and I had my own lab and it was in the same office park as Joe Gibbs racing and, and, uh, a lot of the guys there, including J.D. Gibbs, Joe's son, was in cycling, and uh, he brought me in and and said, "Hey, you don't need an office; just come in here. We need to make these pit stops faster." And you know, I, I grew up in this area, so I knew about the sport. 
but you know, I was like, mm, free rent. <laughs> I think I'll go in here. Um, JD was a nice guy, and I thought, okay, uh, how hard can this pit stop thing be? And and really, there was an evolution, and I, it happened about the same time Tiger Woods in golf. I always say before Tiger Woods, other than maybe Gary Player, these golfers were just fat, out of shape guys, and because it was a level playing field because they all the 19th hole was where they were headed to, you know, down a drink and Tiger Woods came in and suddenly changed the whole, you know, now golfers saw an advantage. Well, motorsports was the same thing. The pit crews were mechanics that work 18 hours a day and the cars, and this is hard to understand if you're not in motorsports, the more era, and this is everything, Formula One, IndyCar, NASCAR, aero, became really big on the cars and aerodynamics believe it or not make fast cars that make it difficult to pass and so pit stops became a way to advance your car and even a slower car that's in the lead is hard to pass so suddenly they said can we make these 16 second pit stops faster and gain spots on pit road and that's happened in all in formula one we all do different times because we have different people. And and I came in and said, oh, this is kind of a challenge. Let me see what I can do. Um, and that's how I got into it. Um, and when I got there, I was like, oh, this is going to be all about numbers. I'm going to time guys in the four. I'm going to take all this data and I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to, I got to replace all these mechanics and and put, at, bring athletes to this sport, which had already started somewhat. Um, but pit stops weren't as important then. And so now it was this second wave and I thought I'm going to collect all this data. Like I always did in athletes. So here's your VO2. I think here's your lactate threshold. Here's That's what I'd always done. Um, now, now I'm going to see about a different type of athlete. And that's what I did. I, I dove into it and I remember meeting coach Gibbs was still coaching in Washington on his second tenure with that. And, even though his son, J.D., who I'll talk about him a lot today because I, I think he's a great influence on me, um, who passed away uh, a year ago. But, but I thought, I'm going to meet Joe. This is the guy that slept in the locker room, right? He won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks who weren't that great. He didn't have a Tom Brady. This guy's a genius. I heard he's got this 500-page playbook, and I, I'm going to sit down with him. And I'm, he came down to visit because he was still coaching in Washington. And he said to me, I only have two rules. And I was like, darn, I thought I was going to sit in here for two hours with Joe Gibbs and in here. And he said, <laughs> it's about people. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's strange. It's about people and don't embarrass the team. <laughs> that's all. That's my rule. I don't have anything else go out there and make these guys faster. And I also noticed Joe didn't have a computer on his desk. And, you know, I was like, oh, he doesn't own a computer. He doesn't believe in computers and he doesn't, you know, and I'm like, hmm, I don't. So I walked out of there going, hmm, I thought I was going to get these great insights. And that it's about people. It took me a couple of years to figure out what he was talking about. Um, And that's kind of how I got started with it. And um, I went and measured everything and I did everything. And it and and JD Gibbs finally said me, he said, Man, just just we need to care about the people we bring in here. And I want anybody who comes in here as an athlete to know that they're here for life, provided they remember the don't embarrass the team part. Even if they, they fail out of the picture, we'll find something for them to do. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. And that was kind of the start of where I started thinking about the culture part of. And then I started meeting, we have 600 employees at that time, probably 400. And I walked around and I saw people that had been there for 20 years. I was like, wow, this is unreal. What, you've been here for 20 years. And I started seeing, you know, everything from the, our receptionist to everybody else had been, you know, in all other parts of the company. So that was kind of how everything started. And I started to think about the people side of, of what I did. Yeah. And, so let's talk about Joe Gibbs a little bit more mm-hmm. because for, for those that aren't familiar, like you said, you know, uh, a lifelong football coach. Yes. 
and yeah, coached the Redskins to, to three Super Bowls, uh, is hugely influential, is in the, the NFL Hall of Fame and the NASCAR Hall of Fame yes. and, and has had a knock-on effect. Probably him and Bill Walsh and a couple of others, Bill mm-hmm. Parcells and, and these guys were so far ahead of the game and are still hugely influential in, mm-hmm. in the things that they were doing in the 70s and 80s. Outside of those two rules, though, like what what's the the imprint that he has had on on your organisation? So he's a football coach, so his kind of exit plan to football is, is to go and and start a, a racing team. So he doesn't know anything about it, but says, "Hey, let's go and try this." And so, what were some of those like legacy items that you could see maybe on, upon reflection now that are really imprinted in your organisation? I think. You, you really, if you look at his move from the NFL to racing, and part of that was his, his kids and their friends. And so Dave Alpert, Todd Meredith, Coy, and, and those guys, he said, I got to give my kids something to do. <laughs> JD had played football at William & Mary. He just said, here, I, I think, and, and people forget, Joe was in California and he, got into the drag racing scene, even back when he was, um, he was part of Air Coriel at, at San, with the San Diego Chargers at the time. And he, so he had this, he discovered this racing thing and he just said, oh, there's something for my kids to do. And, and that's how he started it. But think about the culture difference. If any of us think about car racing <laughs> at that time, it was, it was the guy in the garage and the way they made as fast as they go to a test, they would go around, they take the stopwatch out. And if it wasn't that fast, they take a hammer and beat in the side. And then it would go around and they time it again. There were no engineers. But if you look at the culture of mechanics and car people, it's almost didn't, you know, with athletics um, and later engineers who came in. Those are three different cultures. And I think what Joe realized is because I don't really know about that stuff. I'm just going to walk around and tell people how good they are and how, how I appreciate them. And the one thing I saw about Joe is, and JD is every week they walk around. The first thing they do is walk around and see people and ask how they're doing. JD knew more about an employee's kids little league game than he knew about what we did over the weekend. We could win a race over the weekend and JD would walk around our floor and say, uh, how'd your kid do in that little league game we talked about last week before we'd even talk about the win. And I just started observing this and I was like, this is interesting. And, and, and Joe had the same, and always, you know, getting cultures to work together is probably the number one thing I get asked to speak about now. (laughs) Um, One of our partners, FedEx, just, unfortunately here in the middle of this pandemic went to seven day a week deliveries this year. Um, that was a big culture change. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they have en- more engineers working at FedEx than they do people driving at trucks now to figure out they're in the go fast business like we are. Right. Right. And, um, but that was a big change going to that seven day uh, delivery. And uh, we work with them because there were culture clashes of how do we make this work and you know we did a lot with that last year well we're in the same boat in motorsports um you'll find i know in my first week at joe gibbs racing i went around to meet a lot of the mechanic people the crew chiefs and everybody and a lot of them said we don't really like what you do and we don't think you have a place here and i was like whoa and jd said man don't worry about it just go make these guys faster and you will convince them that you're going to put money in their pockets. Um, but that was a first, and, and, and JD and Joe always had my back because uh, it was a tough thing to bring that athletic culture into the mechanics culture that motorsports had. And it's the same in a lot of businesses as we look out there now, how many businesses that you have talked to in a lot of your podcasts and everything, it's a culture. And now it's even going to be bigger, right? A lot of changes in how we do things. <laughs> um, and it takes a merger of different cultures that come from different backgrounds, analytics people in sports. And then you take this guy that's 
you know, a, a, a great coach that's done thing. And now they're bringing the analytics. A lot of the clashes you see in all sports right now are the analytics people versus the, the coaches, right? Yep. Um, I went through that and it was a big change um, in, in what we do. Uh, and it always came back to the people part. Um, and JD's, Hey, don't worry about it. Show them what you bring to the table. Um, and JD always told me this, which I don't know if Joe would have agreed, but JD always told me, he says, here's a credit card. I don't care how much you spend as long as it's spent taking guys to dinner, taking their families to dinner, getting to know their families, getting to know people. And I was like, oh, that's great. I get to eat out. In fact, a local restaurant named a meal after me because I spent so much money there. Um, and most of that wasn't to talk, was to talk about family, kids. And we're on the longest sports season out there, 36 weeks. These yeah. guys miss their kids growing up. They miss Little League games. Um, and I became and, – and then I was like, God, this – yeah, numbers are important. I, you're not going to take a guy – a donkey and it's going to go win the Kentucky Derby. You, you've got to find good athletes, but then taking them to the next level is about getting to know them as human beings. And I, I learned that through, through this at 50 some years old. It's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, one of the, one of the interviews that we've had on was the guys from Google um, on, on my show. And they were talking about, you know, they released a book trillion dollar coach, and it's, you know, the, the impact of a, a former, you know, football coach on Silicon Valley and, you know, ends up, <laughs> ends up being the, um, you know, call it an executive coach, but really a mentor to Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt and, and these guys that are running, again, these, these huge engineering organizations, numbers, and, and he's just a football coach that, that is able to walk in and, that's what I find fascinating. That's part of the reason for this show, Michael, is I, I want us to, to look at what we've been doing in sport. Like we're talking about Joe Gibbs, Bill Walsh, Bill Campbell, like 70s and 80s ilk uh, football coaches who knew this stuff decades ago. Like we've been doing this for 40 and 50 years. And so we have all these, these cultural and leadership ideas that have been quality tested around building teams of human beings and, and how that works. They're just sitting there waiting for organizations to, to actually look at it. And um, that's why I wanted to start this show was because I want to take it out of the motivation category. I don't want, I don't want companies to bring in the quarterback to talk about motivation. I want them to bring in people like you and say, so you're a, you're a numbers guy. You're, you're one of the, the foundational sports science guys, you shouldn't believe in this stuff. You should believe in numbers and data and, and just plowing more, uh, you know, more and more numbers and data into the, into the problem. But, uh, you know, it, at a certain point that does level out, doesn't it? And, and it becomes the connection between the, the human beings. Absolutely. And, you know, I brought athletes in that had been discarded by, by other teams released by other teams because I knew they would fit into the dynamics of what we had and that what was missing wasn't look, the numbers are great. And I was watching uh, uh, a documentary last night that was sports. I won't get what it is, but it became mindset became the limiting factor. And Nike had brought in all these sports scientists to do that sub two hour and it was, oh, I mean, I, I thought that's so cool. You know, how am I going to get a marathon under two hours? And this was the first time they tried and failed. Um, but one of the sports scientists said, man, after doing all this data, and we had all this tracking, we had it all planned. But really, he's good because of his mindset <laughs> and the way, right. he, the way he relates to his family during the week and the other things he does. He admitted. And, he, he was like me. I, I, I found out that, um, yeah, you do need the numbers. We measure 71 different movements on the stopwatch, 71 different movements during a pit stop. Two-tenths of a second can be a million dollars. But what's unique about a pit stop is if one guy's off, it blows it for everybody. 
you know, and so they have to be, you have to teach them to deal in, in our sports. Resilience is critical and you fail at something. And that's what I always, you know, we get there on Mondays and we, we would lose, you know, blow a pit stop and lose a race. Um, JD always taught me and Joe said, we'll talk about what we can do to fix that today. And then it's not thought about again, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, don't dwell on it. And I felt a lot of our competitors did that. Um, we didn't let people go. Nobody felt they were going to lose their job over a mistake. In fact, if guys aren't making mistakes, you're probably not going to get anywhere. <laughs> you know, uh, that's, you know, so yeah, we still used the science, but it was more about caring about people. And I would, I would go up to JD's office to, ask him a question. And usually it was, this is a cool story. I would go up and we had the worst facility. Sorry, Joe, we had the worst training facility of, of any, any team in the sport. Um, so when I got there, I said, man, I need some new equipment. I need, you know, we need to make the weight room better. We need to do this Had more people, you know, I need this, I need this, I need this. And <clears throat> JD would say, I'll give you $5,000 towards the gym for every win. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, but he said, it isn't going to change anything. It's not about the facility. <laughs> Once again, it's about people. people yeah. And then we started to dominate in the sport and we still had the worst facility and nobody was complaining. I mean, the guys weren't complaining, but I felt like I would see these great pictures of our competitors who said, well, the way we're going to beat Joe Gibbs is to build this great training facility and to build this and do, and we see that in football now, right? In, in American football, we, you know, one of the recruiting tools is I'm going to build the latest and greatest locker room, gym, whatever. Um, and JD would always, if I could find him in his office, by the way, I would always go to his office. He was never in his office. And I would, I would, I would say to Cindy, Cindy, where's talking, talking to people. He's around walking, talking to engineering, CNC, our engine shop. He was always, or our partners, you know, how can I help you guys? How can I make things with you people? So he never was in his office. So when I did find him, um, Ultimately, we upgraded our facility, but it never became the reason people stayed or it never became a recruiting tool. Uh, I always had people tell me the reason I'm coming here or the reason I'm staying here is because of your culture and how you treat people. Yeah, I, and I see that happening in, in so many different parts of the world where again you know we, we've already been through this phase in the corporate world of you know adding the bean bags and the foosball tables and, and the googleization of everything but i you know and I, I tell ceos and executive teams this almost weekly like if that's where you are you've missed the point somewhere further down the line and it, you know yes you might get one engineer two engineers a couple of the best software mm -hmm. developers through the door but that you still miss the point. And yeah, I think it's a, at a really interesting point now where organizations and leaders are starting to realize that, which is fantastic. It is, it's, it's how you treat them Monday to Friday, nine to five. And, and now we're in this situation 24 seven. It's no longer Monday, to Friday, nine to five. Yeah. How are you looking after your people in the middle of a global pandemic? And now we're seeing where the rubber hits the road. Cody, you know, when times are good, <laughs> it's pretty easy, right? Um, last year, we won 19 races, the most won in a season in the modern era. Um, we won the championship. Um, but what do, we, what do we do? How do you sustain that? And sustainability, um, there's a lot of stories out there, but sustainability is difficult because you motivate people to want to beat you. <laughs> you know, that becomes the thing. How do I knock Joe Gibbs racing off the top of this sport? How do you deal with that? Um, I would say you probably work more creatively. I don't say harder because 
this belief's never changed. I think grinding smarter, it, this word grind is, is out there yeah. so much. It's right up there with the word pivot right now. If I, if I see the word pivot one more time or <laughs> grind, right? Um, it's grinding smart. It's, it's, and that's something that I implemented and I did with my athletes for years. Um, I found out that most people succeed. Most people were failing in sports I was doing because they were working ignorantly too hard. Uh, we have to get creative. Uh, and, and during this time now, I'm, you're working with people who are stressed out about losing their jobs. Am I going to still uh, have a job? What am I going to do? And um, that's difficult times. Um, that's in sport, in business. Um, and that's where we're going to find out where leaders are and who true leaders are. Um, and th that culture, um, I, you know, I go back because John wouldn't, and sometimes I have to be careful. Sometimes they bring up people that people, younger people go, I don't remember. I think most people remember John wouldn't, but I've actually, and, and I tell Joe, Hey Joe, I spoke to a group this week and a couple of the guys didn't know who you were. So <laughs> I don't want to age you out, but but John Wooden's pyramid of success is is great, and there's a foundation to that. Um, I see people in the marginal gains thing, and they're all chasing the marginal gains. I believe in marginal gains. We did a lot of things from making our airplane seats better so guys could sleep on long trips, or uh, uh, our hydration products were customized to to help and things like that. But without the foundation, that culture foundation and people foundation, no one's going to buy into that crap. Right. They're just not right. Okay. So this grind smart thing is uh, uh, to me a big part of, of what we're doing now. And also problem solving something that no one's ever had to solve, right? right? We're getting ready to race three times in a week, four times in a week. We've never done that. How do you do that? How do you recover guys and, and compete? It's never been done. Right. And uh, I think the culture, the people part, that comes first. That's the base of the pyramid in 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 our world. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I mean, now we've kind of gone through this uh, period of elongated success, and you know, so even if you look at post post World War II, um, there's been ups and downs. There's been a few things happen, but but really, it's kind of mm -hmm. been a, on a good track. Now to plummeting back down to basically the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy again. And yes. now, now you're dealing with human beings and just raw fear, fear about yes. survival. And so mm -hmm. that is, is the very definition of leadership when you're dealing mm -hmm. with it at that level. And, and that's what I find most fascinating is now you're seeing that the leaders you would expect to thrive uh, are certainly thriving. Um, and some are certainly scrambling that, you know, weren't prepared or, um, or maybe weren't necessarily cut out for, for this type of leadership, like leading through this period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, this is the most fascinating study of human beings in our lifetime. Without oh, and I think it's, I'm sure everybody, there's a high percentage of all of us watching the Michael Jordan series on ESPN and, and a part that I think would really be part of it. Phil Jackson was the glue. If I always, I told a manager the other day, what if you had, you know, Dennis Rodman and Michael Jordan and Pippen and all, who was having troubles with the organization and all of this chaos going on, um, different personalities. And everybody has the tendency to look at the grinding. Michael Jordan is the leader and everything. The leader of it. The only way that happens is Phil Jackson. And that's me looking at it from a coaching standpoint. And you don't see Phil saying a lot in it. Yeah, he's talking there. But he had this way <laughs> of making all those different personalities. If you think about it, when Dennis Rodman was with the Detroit Pistons, he was so hated by Michael. I mean, you know, this guy, and let's bring him in here. Let's bring Dennis Rodman and bring him in here. This is a guy that. You know, you've got to be a great leader to make that group work together. Um, I tell people right now, if you really look at the great leaders of sports teams, Steve Kerr, 
you know, Joe Madden. Um, Joe Madden's not a great baseball manager. He's not a great X's and O's guy, but he has a way. <laughs> Whether he was down in Tampa Bay with a, a horribly funded team or he goes to Chicago and he wins a championship. Uh, I think when they were going to go play game seven in Cleveland to win the championship, he wouldn't let anybody on the plane who wasn't wearing a Halloween costume. And I always, I always look at that and go, that's how you win. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I always tell people, uh, somebody asked me one time, you know, what are the secrets to, to doing that? And I said, I watch Seinfeld every day. I, I base all of my decisions on, uh, uh, you know, and rest in peace. Uh, Frank Costanza, who passed away this week, you know, Jerry Stiller, you know, humor is something that is a big part. And that was big with, with, with JD. I I always tell people JD always was doing something funny. And if you, you Google it, uh, he, he dressed up as a character. I mean, you, you don't realize what those things do (laughs) because you want to say, I'm this data guy. I'm this scientist, and oh, we found this secret. Um, no, and it, sometimes the secrets are things that are silly. And like I say, when I saw Joe Madden, it's like, hey, you guys were getting ready to get a game seven. One of the highest pressure things you can do in having sports. This determines whether the Cubs win a world championship after 500 years or whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, 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 and and they all have to wear Halloween costumes because it was late October uh, before they could get on the plane. I mean, you don't realize what those things do to, to help you win. It's only that stuff. It, it really is. And, and I wish everyone knew that I, I, you know, especially it can be so serious. Like you said, so serious all the time. And, and that stuff at the end of the day, it, it doesn't come back. Like the, I tell my guys all the time, we're going to train, we're going to prepare, we're going to do everything possible for the last two minutes of our grand final. Yes. And you know what, you know what goes away in the last two minutes of, of everything? doesn't matter if you're at the elite or the semi-elite or the junior level. All the X's and O's that you've put up on that whiteboard, they don't remember them. All of the 100-meter the sprints or the 80-yard sprints or the mm-hmm. VO2 max, it all washes away. Right. right? know what comes back is how much they care about each other in those those two minutes it's instinct and care and if it's yes. if it scores a level in the last two minutes of the game in my grand final in the afl or game seven of the cubs indians that's all that comes back yes and if you're not leading towards that i think you're missing a huge opportunity yeah and and once again in this measurable age Halloween costumes aren't measurable, I guess, right? I mean, you can't measure it. So I don't know if it, if it would work. I do. I, I look at Dave Roberts with it. I look at a lot of, you have to integrate it. I think um, the numbers are important, but you have to, as a leader, you have to be able to integrate. And, and typically, those two parties don't mesh. <laughs> you know, and as a great leader, and that's Joe and JD did a great job and do it. And Joe does of getting those people, hey, I can't win without that. Uh, I've got to have both of those entities working together. Um, and uh, sometimes it's about the, the uh, on, you know, on the road, it's about taking the guys out to eat and, you know, talking about things other than the race tomorrow, right? Um, how do you raise kids? Uh, you know, I had a great Alan Lim, who's a good friend of mine, who was involved in pro is and still involved in pro cycling. Great scientist, PhD goes over. You know, we got to change. You know, we got to do all this. He came over there, and and, and I was talking one time, and I said, uh, "Man, you know how you know how do you have a good fall? I mean, a good spring season." And he goes, "Yeah, I found out two things. Number one, hand disinfectant is the key." <laughs> <laughs> because everybody gets sick. And the second thing is, it's all about their girlfriends and wives. <laughs> and I was like, 
Allen, Stanford train. What, 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 what? Yeah, man. I mean, most of the times they underperform. It has something to do with their girlfriends or their wives. Um, that, you know, and Allen's humble enough to say that. Right. You know, um, and uh, I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear about, okay, we weren't you know, improving anaerobic thresholds and, you know, uh, we were not peaking properly and, you know, you got to, had nothing to do with that. Of course. I want to change tact a little bit here. I want to pivot. I want to pivot. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, what I found fascinating and you touched on this before, and a lot of people probably wouldn't know this outside of racing is just what your organization looks like. So in terms of where you go and find you guys, you, again, you you call them athletes and, and you were talking earlier about that move where you went from mechanics to, to athletes. Talk us through that. Where do your guys come from? Because there's no, there's no junior NASCAR where these guys are, you know, training and, uh, and I, I know the answer to this question and I found it fascinating and I'm sure others will as well. Who are your guys? Where do they come from and how do you find them? Most of them are athletes of different sports. Um, position by position, you know, there is you can't be a tire changer who can hit five lug nuts in less than a second. You get around the car if you're six foot five. So there are some physical parameters. But one of the things I learned, and they just come from different sports, and it became difficult. We went out to Exos in Phoenix and said, hey, you guys train all these athletes. And a lot of times they are exiting their sport, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they've been released by an NFL team or they were an MLS player and they were released or they're at the end of their career or they're not going to make it. Um, I had a difficult time rec- recruiting them just because um, they didn't want to say they were done. <laughs> <laughs> with their sport, right? right I'll right. go play in Canada or I'll, I'll, I'll do, you know, I'll, 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 you know, go to Korea and play basketball, whatever. Um, so that was the first obstacle convincing people, but we pay well more than they're making is a, more than an NFL practice squad player. Um, and, but here's the key thing that I found out. They, if they were great college player, great, whatever, didn't guarantee they were going to be good at this. And Nate Bowling, who played three years in the NFL, uh, I rec- and he was a all American at Wake Forest as a, a football player was our Jack man recruited him. I said, why did it take you four years? And we do have a minor league system, technically the truck series, the Xfinity series yeah. that once we recruit them, they takes a growing up through there. I said, how did you do that? Why didn't you just, you're, you're really good. Why did it take three years? He said, I have no idea. I, I, I guess on the NFL field, I never worried about dying. <laughs> Stepping out in front of 55, 60 mile an hour cars. Um, and if you really watch, it's choreographed chaos. Mm-hmm. But these guys are within an inch of getting hit by a car every time they go out there. And the cars look slow because they're they're 55 instead of 200. So right. when they're out there, people think they're just – I always tell people, go out to – don't do this, but go out to the interstate and stand on the side of the road as the car goes by at 65 miles per hour and get within an inch of it. That's what these guys did. So I found out that not every – a great NFL athlete or MLS athlete or baseball athlete did not necessarily best predictor of who is going to succeed at this, right? Um, and there was the fear factor. Uh, there was a little arrogance. Oh, I played in the NFL. I can do this. Um, so there was a lot of mindset components to this. Um, there are also a lot of athletes where now, if you watch, and all of y'all will get to do this now because I think we'll be the only sport on television here for the next couple of weeks, watch and you'll see this, you know, there's so many chances to make mistakes, right? And a lot of times that was hidden in the sport they played in. If you're a defensive lineman in the NFL, mm-hmm. you'll hear about it on Monday in film, but most people watching the game didn't see that. Right. You might not even be on screen. Yeah. Here, 
every pit stop, overhead camera. And if you screw up, and here's the other key thing. The only time you become famous as a pit crew athlete is when you screw up. When you win a race, you see that driver in victory lane and the champagne pouring. And yeah, the athletes are back there, but nobody knows who they are. They're almost, I use our equivalent to special forces. In, and we've actually worked with special forces and them learning some of the things we do. We've shared knowledge with some special op, military special ops people. That's what these guys are. They're special ops people and sometimes not getting recognized, right? Um, unless they screw up, unless they mess up. Um, we've had that happen. And a lot of times they're multi-million dollar mistakes. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. And a lot of them said they didn't feel that in the other sports. So it wasn't as easy as I thought. I thought, geez, Joe's got connection to the NFL. I'm going to go get these great athletes. And, um, and I found out it wasn't that easy. So sometimes it's people you don't expect. It's that guy that said, you know, I want to be an athlete. I want to compete, but I'm not going to be recognized like I was in my, my sport that I came mm -hmm. from. Right. And, and I've got to learn to work with a group of five guys, seven, when we started, we're down to five guys now, uh, which we've had to adapt to. So um, most of our athletes come from other sports, but I always tell people it's not the sport they did. It's whether they have the athletic mindset, how to be resilient is probably the number one component versus a lot of physical skills same boat as me this is why this resonates with me so much no one's growing up watching aussie rules football in canada i can tell you right that much. and so all my guys are former u sports guys that have played basketball football and, and i agree that resilience the the ability to suck yes re repetitively at a high level is is key to their transition especially with a game like ours like Mm -hmm. It is just so unique, and and to your point, your 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 athletic uh, framework is is so unique. Um, on an ordinary week, though, I think people would also be fascinated by this. So let's not deal with your your current situation of you know three four mm -hmm. races a week. In an ordinary season, what would the life of of one of your athletes look like from training to going home to to going to the races just talk us through that for a little bit uh seven day cycle really we we kind of um usually on our seven day cycle where um day one is race day and usually that's saturday sundays because we do the xfinity series and the cup series um, we run our own airline, so it's cheaper for us to just have our own airplane. But typically, Friday, Saturday, we get to the racetrack, um, race on those two days, um, and then fly home. And we, we, we race all over the country. So um, sometimes that's an hour flight. Sometimes it's a four-hour flight. But we usually get home on and, – and that's one of the reasons we do this week you know joe and jd wanted our guys to get home as soon as possible not on monday afternoons but get home on sunday nights so they could uh, get home to their family mondays is usually a recovery day or and film um, we film everything we do we debrief which I, I think is one of the key things we debrief the bad and the good and sometimes those are and i always said there's no rules in there and usually i i, I like them to debrief themselves i like to see the guys stay out of it yeah. uh, and let them solve their problems. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, good and good, good and bad. We debrief and that's it. What happened on and celebrate if we won good, but it's over with usually do rest and recovery. Uh, we have a great medical staff and support injuries, training room recovery. Um, Practice days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, with strength conditioning specific to their positions. Depends on the time of year. We periodize the year to um, what we're doing in the wet. We're very seldom in the wet, much in the weight room when we're in the last 10 races of the year, like we are early in the year. But um, sometimes try to give them Thursday off if we're traveling on Friday and then back to the racetrack um and you know that happens 36 times during the year um like i said uh you know thanks to andrew small with the bucks and and 
guys who gave me how to do more of an NBA schedule. Now this, this week to help our, the strength and conditioning guys, um, you know, um, come up with a different way of doing this here. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going from that, you know, racing week to week to you guys are looking at three, maybe even four races yes. now. Yeah. Yeah. And within driving distance, uh, which is still to our drive, yeah, right. you know, um, by yourself because we can't all be together. Right. Um, and we're going to see how it goes. I mean, like I said, we, we want to see if we can pull this off and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, get that started this Sunday and, and see how it works. Uh, it's like I said, never been done. Um, I'm grateful, you know, and I haven't said this grateful, you know, we have a great medical partner and, and all that everybody's doing right now, especially a medical field. And I have a history in medicine and just seeing what everybody's doing right now. And they're helping us as best they can, uh, to stay safe. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. For for everyone involved, um, reflecting on your experience and your life in leadership and in problem solving, give us your kind of commentary on like the state of of like modern leadership. We've talked a little bit about it, but if you could leave us with with a, a, a key message, what do you think that would be right now, given everything that you've been through? You know, <clears throat> people ask me why did I get out of healthcare. You know why, you know, and healthcare allowed me to get paid to do sports stuff. So I was affiliated with something where there was a sport component to it. But that's the first time, if I could equate it, is when healthcare changed in in America in the 80s and we shifted to more of a managed care system. Um, and somebody told me that 60% of hospital CEOs turned over in the next 10 years. And it, I, and it's one of the reasons they got a healthcare. And it's like, why did that? What, what? They didn't, they knew how to lead in prosperity, but they didn't know how to lead when suddenly, and I remember um, I developed a heart center where they were going to do open heart surgery, which is the number one surgery done in America, um, which was, is hard for a lot of people to believe, shows you how big heart disease is. We built this heart center and, you know, we were going to get paid $20,000 per procedure. I'm just going to throw that number out there. And suddenly managed care came along and said, we're all, we represent 20,000 people and we're only going to pay you $10,000. And I remember the CEO saying, our cost $1,000. Sorry, we're taking our business elsewhere. And healthcare just blew up. And I saw a lot of turnover because got people did not know how to lead in that type of crisis and solve mm-hmm. those problems. Right. And we're still trying to solve those problems. Um, and I think that was the first time I saw where a lack of proactive leadership, um, complacency, things like that. I see the same thing in sports. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really successful. Um, and you just sit back. And, and think it's going to be that way, um, players get hurt. <laughs> There's free agency. The biggest job fair on earth is at a NASCAR race every weekend when people are trying to steal everybody else's uh, athletes. And, and that's true in all sports. You, you, you don't know. And I think I learned from my healthcare example that it goes back to a Stephen Covey principle. And a lot of people don't remember Stephen Covey, but it's still one of the great books, um, highly successful habits. And one of them is be proactive. And that's just, you, you have to be proactive for what's now. Could we have been proactive on a pandemic? No, I'm not sitting here saying, but as coaches, teachers, leaders, you have to be looking ahead and being proactive. You have to make sure another heavy principle, you've leaned the ladder against the right wall, right? Mm-hmm. We can climb and climb and climb and we get up to the top of that damn ladder and we, shit, we leaned it against the wrong wall, right? <laughs> I mean, and I think, I think that's a critical part with leaders right now. Like I said, not to say in the pandemic, we could have seen that coming or, or whatever. Um, but I see a lot of, lack of sustainability of high performance 
to that not being proactive and seeing what was coming. I saw healthcare is still trying to transition through <laughs> that big change of managed care in America, um, uh, which is different than it is in in other ways. But I saw healthcare struggle. Um, I saw committees formed that took three years to decide on what they were going to name a, a unit on a wing. Right. And I was like, if we did that in sport, uh, I, I, I'd be sleeping in the woods out here uh, with nowhere to stay. Sport has the ability to bring to business and leadership how to fix. I have a seven-day cycle to fix a problem. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I've got corporate partners from FedEx, M&M's, Stanley, all of those, they, they don't tolerate losing. <laughs> I, I don't have three months and 20 subcommittees to solve a problem. I have to solve it right now. <laughs> and that's what's unique to sport. And I think if, it, if we move that to business and, and other uh, education, healthcare, whatever, um, we'd be better off. Yeah, I always think, uh, and I have this saved, and I wrote a blog about it, Steve Ballmer talking about he had no idea what accountability was until he bought the Clippers. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this last week. Like every 24 seconds, you see what my culture is like, what my team's culture mm-hmm. is. And I, I think that's a really interesting idea and it probably needs someone at that scale to, to talk about it. Former CEO of Microsoft right? Like mm-hmm. he's in all the videos of Bill Gates up on stage and all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. And he goes, yeah, I actually didn't know anything about accountability <laughs> until I bought a sports mm-hmm. team. And uh, I think that's just a really fascinating idea. And, and I agree with you wholeheartedly in that that's, that's what a lot of the leadership lessons that come out of our industry are. Again, it's not mm-hmm. the motivation stuff. I, I, right. I think that there is a little bit in there, but that's not what's going to impact organizations. Um, mm-hmm. on, a, on a huge scale like you're talking about as well. Uh, I tell people, you can use the hashtag, go, go fast. That's what we are now. We have to fix things quickly. Um, there's a stopwatch running. I've been in the stopwatch business my whole life, right? Yeah. Um, we don't ha- we have to, ha- you know, the, the, the great people we have on the front lines trying to solve the COVID Right. They're, you know, they operate in such a, we got to do this quickly because of the impact this is happening, having, um, but I think that's most business decisions now. Um, you, you have to be able to solve things quickly, quickly and effectively. Um, and, um, uh, in sports, that's always been the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people are not going to tolerate, um, you know, not, winning, not producing. And a lot of it, look, I'm a quote person too. I think there's great quotes out there and I'll post quotes here and there, but I really want people to meditate on those things, which by the way, is something I'm doing more of right now. During this time, I've become way more reflective. um, And, you know, I'm coloring, (laughs) playing with the dog. I'm coloring because it produces what a mindful state. One of my my great, uh, you know, friends is a doctor that uh, teaches mindfulness to his patients and I'm trying to listen to him. And, um, you know, you can reflect back on, on some cool things, but, um, I, I really think that clearing the mind, a lot of times solutions, a lot of times solutions to my problems happen in the shower. Me you know, too. you get in the shower and suddenly, whew, wow, I've been trying to solve that problem because I've been trying too hard and that type of thing. So I think to solve things, Quickly, it's not necessarily working harder. It's working smarter, getting mindful, um, clearing the mind. And a lot of times solutions come out there. But um, that's that's one of the things I've learned during this pandemic is taking that opportunity to clear my mind. And I've come up with a lot of new solutions. Indeed, me too. And I hope this sparks or this, what we're going through does spark a conversation around leadership and, and who's leading and why. And a lot of the time, you know, unfortunately, we kind of let particularly salary be uh, some sort of de facto for leadership. So you, you chase 
you chase leadership because it just came with more money, which again is fine. But uh, I think there's opportunities for us to to clear the decks through this and and get people who are interested in in leadership into positions of leadership. And I think you make a good point there. I, I've I leave it to the the during my peak of my coaching, I leave all that general manager stuff and how much somebody gets paid. I later found out we didn't pay the most, but we kept people because of that culture part. So I think it's interesting you bring up the, um, you know, it's, you it, once again, and now I'm throwing a quote out there, you focus on the process, outcomes will come. I, I don't, if I look back at my career, most of the great, a lot of the great moments are not necessarily winning a championship or winning an event. It, it came down to the cool stories and great. And I saw many athletes over the years when they won, they would go through this two or three months depression period. And I would go, man, we just won. Yeah. But that man, the process part, we, we got to get back to that because that's what I really do this for. Um, they don't talk about the money. <laughs> they, they, they don't talk about the ring. They talk about that process and and the time we spent together and and that part is the greatest. And you know, we we have a lot of mutual friends, both from the endurance sports world and the team sports world, and and that comes up over and over and over again. Is is on the coaching side is is the loneliness and the weight and the sleeplessness yes. of of what we do. And I speak to head coaches all over the world. And, and the one thing we understand is the weight of the decision-making right? And, and, and having, it's almost, uh, it's almost counterintuitive, but having that power it, it mm-hmm. can be crippling at the same time. And then similarly to your point, athletes, the, the lack of fulfillment on mm-hmm. achievement <laughs> is fascinating. Uh, getting there and going, Oh, this is it. And yeah, the, you know how many how many championship rings are sitting in dusty boxes in basements? Uh, uh, behind me here <laughs> in the other room. <laughs> right, right. And uh, yeah. Steve Kerr talked about that on on his podcast with Pete Carroll. He's like, I don't know where my rings are. Um, it's yeah, it's the stories. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I had a guy come to me the other day and said, man, one of the highlights of my year is he, he had a, you know, that he was a tire changer and he just was in a slump. And he, he, one time I, I heard him practicing and it was like eight o'clock at night and it was dark and he found the problem. That was his highlight of the year. Right. Man, I figured that out, man. It was so cool when I finally figured out that I was, you know, um, you know, and I, I, Somebody's asked me because I've you know, certainly Joe and JD great influences on me, but I always tell people none of, and I tell this to everybody who's out there that has the opportunity to influence somebody. Unfortunately, we never find out what that means, you know, but somebody asked me the other day, who's the greatest influence? I said, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my senior year English teacher in high school. <laughs> I was a rebellious athlete. I, I coaches drove coaches crazy. I, I maybe that's why I handled people well because I was an asshole, you know. So, but that English teacher, um, you know, Mrs. Honeycutt sat me down and said, "You know, I really see something, and you get to do this." That conversation changed my life, and that you never know as a leader, when you're going to have an influence and you may never know that, that you have that ability to, to influence somebody in something, but that's what I live for. That's what, and, and, you know, JD, you know, his influence on me and how I lead my life and what I do. And then you hear back to how he did that to hundreds of people. And it had nothing to do usually with an outcome on a sports field. So um, the magic leaders out there, just realize the opportunity you have to influence people um, every day. That's the magic of it. And it's funny because it, you can't put that stuff on a resume, right? Like we focus on those outcomes exactly. like you talk about. What's this going to do for my resume? It's, it, that's not it. 
again, you've missed the point there. It's those, those things that you can't explain, the text messages that you get, you know, at, at 2 a.m. from a player or, or whatever it is saying, like, just thanks. Those oh, yeah. Are the little things. Yes. That's the magic. And I always say, in the era of the combine, I'll, I'll tell another Joe story. Joe, Joe said, ah, I don't believe in that combine thing stuff. I don't really know what that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, if you really want to know about this guy, go talk to his college coach. Find out who his high school coach was. And find out who his Pop Warner coach was. Then go find some teacher in kindergarten. I was like, what? So that you'll learn a lot more from those conversations about what this person is going to do for you than any of these numbers at the combine. Um, so think about that. Love it. So the traditional wrap up question here, and you kind of touched on it, but I'm curious as you've gone through this reflective period and had this time apart, what have you found that maybe is a little bit obscure. What Wikipedia whole or Netflix documentary or Amazon documentary have you watched that's maybe something new? You know, I always talk about like the history of pianos uh, or flat earth mm. theory or like, what's something wacky that you've You know, up. Cody, I, that's always been me. I, I, I find I've learned a lot about leadership and coaching outside of the domain of sport. Me too. Um, a great documentary I watched was Echo in the Canyon, which is, um, you know, Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's son, who went back and said, boy, in the 60s and 70s, and I lived then. <laughs> and looking at these musicians, they all lived in a certain part of the canyon, and they all went over to everybody's house, and everybody exchanged ideas, and it was all coming from passion. Not like, I'm going to write this song because it's going to make me sell a million. You know, it was all let's get together and write some music and do some stuff and do some. And that, if I look at all the stuff I've watched and, you know, looked at uh, music has turned into one of these great, um, I'm looking at Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day every Monday, writing a new song, doing a new song in his, in his house, you know, that's coming from passion and things that he did. Um, I've been trying to do some of that you know, looking outside of my domain of sport um, as to where I can learn about um, new things. Uh, so music is always one of the things I turn to. Um, and I just look at the passion Jacob Dylan did with doing that documentary, but seeing all those people from Tom Petty and mm -hmm. um, all those people of, you know, they were really doing that from a passion, not necessarily, and the, and the side effect was making money. <laughs> They weren't thinking about, I'm going to, I think today a lot of things is I'm going to, I got to, I got to sell records or I've got to, you know, do this. And so um, that documentary got to me a lot. I really thought that was a cool um, thing that looked at the passion uh, of what everybody did. Um, and the side effect was, oh, they became famous and made money. So uh, that's one of the things outside I've, I've been influenced by that. Doc I've watched it three times now. Echo in the Canyon? Echo in the Canyon. Uh, Jacob Dylan, I think you can get it on Netflix and different things now. But, uh, you know, it just looking at how in the 70s they all, <laughs> hey, let's go write some songs. Hey, let's go do. And they, they didn't think about, oh, this is going to make me all this money. And, yeah. you know, uh, and I think that's in sport. It's the same thing. Pay attention to the process. Pay attention. And once again, and get into uh, Dr. Fields, my friend of uh, be in the moment right now. That's all you have and focus on that process and the outcome is going to be really good. <laughs> right. Don't, you know, it's like climbing. Uh, you know, if you don't pay attention to the next handhold and you're just focused on the summit, mm not too good things are going to happen. Right. Um, so that's been one of the things where yeah, I've been kind of uh, contemplating on here during the downtime. Love it. I've been on a, probably a two year kick now of, of looking into comedy stand up. Oh yes. yeah. Through the, and, and now with, you know, uh, Seinfeld coming out and doing more and they're like mm. bringing on his buddies and talking to them. They just talk about the artistry. And yeah. it's great to see, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s, like New York City, Leno, mm. like these guys. Oh, yeah. 
some of those tickets, man, you look at like the, the bills and you've got literally everyone you can name all, all doing back-to-back shows in these yes. in your comedy and they're all in the scene together yes. and the conversations and talking of passion. Yes. Those guys weren't doing it for money back then. You know, I'm glad you said up. that. Larry David, Larry David, you know, just season 10 of Curb Your Enthusiasm fell out a good time, right? Uh, we all got together. The only time we've gotten together in social distance was to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. But Larry David, there's a book on Larry David that talks about that time in the East Village and uh, in New York. And, you know, they were poor. I mean, you made nothing, but it was that passion of getting out and doing it. And it all kind of sat back and said, oh, remember that time we did? They, they ended up being episodes in Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's so yeah. cool. Um, there was no real motivate. They have all become multimillionaires, obviously, but um, none of them thought we could have thought back then that was going to be the case. They just had a passion for what they were doing. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, the artistry, like you said, with music is, yeah, and that's the stories is just like, yeah. Hey, I had this joke and it didn't work. And then I brought it to you when you said, mm-hmm. well, change this word to this. And then, you know, mm-hmm. you go and test yes. it. Um, yes. by that. Yeah. Michael, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Uh, Lap on Instagram. Michael Lap, Michael underscore whatever that is. Lap on Twitter. I try to, I'm going to start doing some coaching podcasts and things like that that I'll put out on that. And, um, you know, uh, certainly if you ever have any questions, mlap at joegibbsracing.com. Anybody, I'm open to, you know, I've tried to be out there for people. right now so i'll answer every email i'll I, i've tried to do that and uh be there for people so and thank you for all you're doing um your your podcast very diverse that's where we learn from diverse it's not just uh um so thanks for all you're doing you're doing great stuff no thank you and i'm very much looking forward to once this is all over coming for a visit come down to and see you guys um yes i'm stoked for that and uh yeah man thank you this has been long overdue uh you're you're a must follow on social media you post such interesting things and diverse things um which is kind of how we came into each other's world so Mm -hmm. thank you for doing that and and sharing what you've learned and and sharing your perspectives but uh it's been awesome to, to have you on this certainly won't be our last conversation thanks cody stay warm